For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Wednesday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating tonight? I'm celebrating the fact that I'm perpendicular. I'm getting better and better every day. So I want to thank you all for the cards. Uh, I Yesterday, I received a package from Katz's Delicatessen. I mean, with chicken matzo ball soup and everything. It was just incredible. So thank you all for the phone calls and the cards and everything. But I am getting better each and every day. Today is National Take Your Teddy Bear to Work Day. So I have my little teddy bear here on my desk. It's a skipper do- uh, teddy bear that somebody actually uh, had created for me and sent to me. So that was a lot of fun. But tonight, we have everything because we have Celia Burke on the show. And for those of you who already are familiar with her work, you already know that she is one of the greatest singers in cabaret today. And I'll say that, uh, and she's gonna nod in the background, I'm sure. Uh, But I am a huge fan of hers. And I have been a fan of hers since the first time I would see her performing with Sarah Rice and Carol Demas and their troupe. And then I saw her at the Iguana before she made this huge, incredible splash on the New York City cabaret scene. Uh, But she made a big splash and she continues to make us a big splash. Today, I was going through some old uh, correspondence and everything, and I did an interview with her in 2015. Um, And I can't believe that the time has just gone by. But Enough about all that. She's here tonight, and I am thrilled. Celia, I am so thrilled that you were here tonight, and congratulations on this great, I'm not going to call it a CD, I'm going to call it an album. An album. That's all, you know, what do you call this music anymore? It's hard to know. It is so incredible. I've been listening to you on a mix all day. I've got all of your CDs on my device. I won't say her name because she will go off. Yes, they're all there. Uh, so I listen to you all day long, but uh, and we're going to talk about this particular uh, CD in a moment. Beyond the obvious, the fact that we are celebrating this new CD tonight, who or what are you celebrating today? Well, I'm celebrating that I'm perpendicular as well, and I think you should just clarify your opening statement and and make sure everybody understands it's because you had COVID. Uh, and still uh, in it. I'm still yeah, and are still in it, and I've just come out of it, and I am so annoyed to have gotten caught this late in the game because I'm the one walking around with a mask all the time. Um, but I'm certainly celebrating that I feel wonderful and uh, am out and about and my friends and family are healthy. So that's the most important thing. Knock on wood. Well, let's start with the PSA, a public service announcement, get boosted. Because I have been so careful. I have been incredibly careful. I have not been going to shows. I have not been doing things. I go out and have dinner with a, a couple of friends last week in their apartment. They just got back from being on a cruise. I'm not saying that that's where I got it, but that's the only logical explanation that I have. Last week, anyone who knows me knows that for uh, 
Two years I've been working on these events celebrating Helen Hayes here in Nyack. I was not able to attend one event oh. after two years of work. And we're going to talk about the stops and starts in a career because uh, Melissa Errico uh, just a month ago posted a video that had me in tears. Uh, she was in uh, the Midwest ready to do a concert and it got rained out. And this mm. was something that she had spent a lot of time and effort and money on. And then everything stops. This CD uh, or this album, uh, did you start working on this prior to COVID? And I'm talking about the bigger umbrella of COVID, not your COVID. Yes. Uh, or, yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. Yes, uh, or did it come as a result of COVID? No, it's not not as a result of COVID, but I think it colored the ultimate recording. So it started, I want to say, about four years ago in a partnership with a wonderful pianist named Sean Goff. And we started working together and we did various dates. We did the Beach Cafe. We did um, Birdland Theater. We did the Catano uh, and started to prepare to record, at which point uh, we invited Ted Firth to, to join the creative team. Um, and at that point, um, I would say two thirds to three quarters of the songs were set. Um, but if you had asked me what the album was about before we went into COVID, I would have said, oh, it's about love, about connecting, disconnecting, trying to connect. Uh, but by the time I came out of COVID, the COVID lockdown and the, the depths of the experience, I would I would change that to say that it's about connecting. Uh, it really changed my perception of uh, what it is that we do as human beings. And, you know, I'm, I'm an introvert. So I thought, oh, this isn't going to be so hard for me. I, I, don't, I don't go out that much either. And I found the lack of connection to be absolutely brutal. And so I would say now that it's about the way that we connect our hearts to each other or try to, not just romantically. And so it evolved during the COVID, during the COVID lockdown and that phase. Now, which comes first for you, um, the idea of an album and the songs that will go into it, or does it come out of the creative process of creating a show? Uh, when you started out on this journey with Now That I Have Everything, um, was your ultimate goal to do an album or was it to just create a new show for yourself? Uh, probably neither. It was to step further into the jazz realm, not that I would ever, ever present myself as a pure play jazz singer, but I wanted to see what that was like. Uh, I thought it would uh, challenge me in different ways. I thought it would relax me a little bit because I'm very classically trained and I wanted to see what would happen and the, the jazz chords and the jazz sensibility and what it's like to work with jazz musicians who never play the same thing twice. Um, that's what I was going to do. Um, and the prompt for what started as a show or a, a set and became the album were two songs. Uh, one is the, what became the title track, Now That I Have Everything. But the first song that started the whole thing was a song that's not on the album, but was in the show um, 
called Now Now It Can Be Told by Irving Berlin. And my friend Debbie Whiting, the daughter of Margaret Whiting, the granddaughter of Richard Whiting, uh, had given me um, an album of her mother's radio, um, a, an unproduced radio, things that she had discovered that her uh, mother had recorded on the radio and had never been put out. And one of the songs was her mother singing Now It Can Be Told. And I remember having it on in the background and walking around the apartment and standing in that doorway and listening to that song that I'd never heard. And I thought, now what can be told? And I went, oh, I'm going to find out. I'm going to do a program of songs about this, what was prompted by that song, which is the greatest love affair that's never been told. So it started out as romantic love. And so I set out and started to accumulate songs. And I've always got a running list of things that might show up in a project at some point. And then Debbie came back uh, and there was an email and it's was called Now That I Have Everything. And it said, I've been listening to Mother on the radio and I can hear you sing this song. And it was Now That I Have Everything. And I said, that's the last song. If the prompt is Now It Can Be Told, Now I Know Where We're Going, uh, which is the ultimate re resolution. Now I have everything. I just need to find the arc of the set and this arc ultimately of the album. So it was really this, those two songs. Well, let's uh, talk about arcs for a moment, because, mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, I, I still love albums. I, I still have a lot of vinyls, uh, and I love that sound of that uh, cl crispy sound that you yeah. don't hear on a CD, of course. Um, but when I listen to music, uh, and I do have a mix going uh, sometimes, but I also love to just sit back, which is what I did with you, and listen to the entire album in one sitting, if possible. Just whether I'm lying in bed listening to it or just sitting back and trying to shut out the rest of the world and listening to it. And unfortunately, people don't listen to music this way anymore. So as you are creating this album, uh, is that arc always uppermost in your thoughts? Or are you thinking you know, just piecemeal, if you will, uh, for lack of a better uh, phrase, uh, in terms of people can just listen to the music as an entity into itself. Well, I think there's a difference between an arc and sequencing an album. So we did, in the end, have to figure out how to sequence these songs. And it was the hardest of the three albums to sequence. And you still want to sequence it knowing that some people like you and other people who really respect the process and want to hear what the artist intended and how they intended you to hear it, you sequence it. But the arc for me was just the twists and the turns that would ultimately result in now that I have everything. So what you then call the album is signaling to the listener, no matter whether they shuffle it or listen to it one at a time or throw it into a mix or pick up one song on a playlist or whatever, you want them to know that it's all in service of, I finally have everything and my everything is you. So it was really important that it become the title of the song, of the album, just like the last album was Manhattan Serenade. And you knew that it was, it was an album about Manhattan. You know, it's very interesting. I watched a documentary the other night on Max Steiner 
And yes. Max, you know, Max Steiner truly created the soundtrack of motion pictures in terms right. of everything. And it was interesting when he was working on a film, which I did not realize until I watched the documentary the other night, he did not want to read a script. Uh, he did not want to have any bearing. Once he had an outline of what the show was about or the movie, then mm -hmm. he was able to put those motifs uh, and he created, there was a phrase called Mickey Mousing, which was basically, it, you know, in Disney cartoons, each of the characters had their own uh, sound, yeah. uh, their own motif. And so he, of course, did that. The most famous, of course, being Gone with the Wind, where everyone has their own theme. Uh, which That's I right. And, and I actually, as a teenager, went out and bought the album of the music from Gone with the Wind. And it was the first time I isolated the sound of the music in a muse in a movie and mm -hmm. as you said everybody has their theme you know mammy has a theme pity pat has a theme scarlet has a theme and just the sweep of it and you absolutely could hear uh what was going on in that movie and you did not need the dialogue to know that and uh when I'm working on an album, the engineer will give me some kind of a rough mix of just the musicians. So before I go in to do the vocals and I learn so much from what the musicians have done, what they think is going on in that song. And it ultimately became Ted Firth at the piano. And, and when you isolate Ted uh, and just listen to what he's doing without, without any of my scratch vocals, it's just extraordinary it's like these flashes of oh oh i can go in and out and around that but look what look what he's anchored here or look what he's done at the beginning that helps your ear acclimate to what that first phrase is going to be that i sang so i find all of that absolutely fascinating I want to give a nod to KT Sullivan, because when I first started in this business, she said, have at least five musicians, uh, five musical directors who know your show so that you're never at a loss. Yeah. And when I was performing as Carol Channing in the dark ages uh, and I was touring all over the country, a lot of times when you got booked, you did not have the option of because of budgets and everything to bring your musicians with you. I would show up. And those musicians would be in place. Uh, I had all my music uh, on uh, in a file so that they could go in and download the music before I would arrive there. And uh, each time I would show up, I would always say, I know what I'm doing. Bring your own style to the show. And that way it makes it interesting for me. I know that some singers... Uh, are very rigid in terms of how something has to sound and be. But I found that that flexibility was really uh, growth. I mean, it was growth material for me and yeah. I loved doing it. Let's go there for a moment in terms yeah. of putting your team together of musicians because you've worked with so many incredible people in this business and they've worked with you. Yeah, and I, I've just been so fortunate. I mean, my first two albums, the music director and the co-producer was Alex Rybeck, and you, you can't set out into 
recording in the cabaret world any better than with a Sherpa like Alex Rybeck and the director of the two shows that were based on the album was Jeff, Jeff Horner. You can't do any better. I, I felt like they poured a lifetime uh, of experience uh, into me. Uh, and it was not an easy decision uh, to then say, I want to step into the jazz world a little bit and see where that takes me. And that took me to other collaborators. It was, it's terrifying. It really is. And you get used to hearing certain things on your rehearsal track. Uh, we just sang the, I just did the album live at the National Arts Club a couple of weeks ago. And we had the original musicians there and the engineer had given me the final tracks without vocals so that I could rehearse. And we didn't rehearse again with the musicians until that morning. And I just had to make up my mind that wherever they went, it was not going to sound like it did on the recording because they're jazz musicians. Mm -hmm. And to your point, I know what I'm doing uh, and they are going to do whatever they're doing. And hopefully it brings out something fresh and exciting. And, and it, it does. And it does. And so now that I've like gotten over that hump, I, I don't think I'll ever be quite so frightened by it anymore. And, and we did, the the I, and I know you like it the the just the the base of right as the rain with Jay Lenhart, and it was fantastic. But it was nothing like what we had done in the studio. It ended up that it wasn't Jay on the recording, but um, regardless, it was just. But it was so alive because when you're doing something, you, the way you have to listen and the way they have to listen to me, uh, just you go like that, um, and it was really thrilling. Well, we are going to give away an autographed copy of your CD tonight. And uh, there it is. And uh, the the word that I chose for today is drive. Because uh, I've looked at the uh, trajectory of your career. And uh, from where I stand, you do seem to have an intense drive for perfection, uh, for the work that you do. Uh, for the way that you are presented and the way, you know, and, and I would even go to say the way that you are perceived in this business. I mm -hmm. think that you are really in control of your brand, who you are as an artist and what you bring to the table. I want to ask you, where did that drive first originate for you? And I know that you're classically trained and we're going to get to the cabaret world in a moment, yeah. but how did that all begin for you? The, well, the irony is when I set out to do to be a performer 30 years ago and decided I, I couldn't live that life, I just wasn't made for it, uh, I went off and I had a corporate career. And the corporate career I had was in marketing communications in the world's largest public relations firm and then advertising agencies. I spent 30 years immersed in branding. Uh, and messaging. So it, it's not like I'm I'm being cynical about it. It's like, I don't know any other way to do that. I spent all those years watching the greatest communicators in the world at work. And I just picked up certain things from them. When you were immersed in that world, were you delving into the world of cabaret at all? Were you going to see Not shows? cabaret, I, of course, because I I love music and I mm -hmm. love theater. Uh, I, I said that I gave everything up uh, and I really believed that I had. And I didn't notice that I hadn't 
actually stop taking voice lessons every week. So there was something in the back of my mind that was keeping the engine humming. Uh, and so when I went back to it, I went, oh, look at that. <laughs> Actually, that was the part of it I never gave up. All that time I thought I'm an actor. Uh, but look at that. The thing that I couldn't bear to let go of was actually the music. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was there. And so if you ask anybody who was with me during that 30-year corporate career, they would go, oh, yeah, she would go off once a week to a voice lesson. She'd bolt out of here at the end of the day once a week, and you'd see music in her bag, whether it was an opera score or a song or whatever, but she'd never let us hear what she was doing. So. Was that just for the sheer exhilaration of keeping your voice uh, intact and singing uh or in the back of your mind was the fact that I'm always going to have that career at some point? No, in a million years, if anybody had told me that I would go back to it or that I would have any kind of success with it at this phase, of my, I would tell them it's not possible. It, it really is something more elemental than that. Mm -hmm. I have to sing. I have to sing. Now, I asked, as I do with uh, many of our guests, for a young photograph of you. <laughs> My love, mother will be enjoying this. I, yep. <laughs> no, I love this photo. I the think hair, it, just no, the hair. I, I love the bangs. Look at the I bangs, yes. The barrettes. Yes. Uh, and, you know, and, and I, re I mean, I remember, you know, going to school and girls looking like this in school. And I mean, it's just so adorable. I remember being, her, my mother setting me up for this. Then there are other pictures where it looks like there was a bowl on my head and then she cut around. <laughs> and then I saw Debbie Whiting posted something on Facebook and I went, oh my gosh, Margaret cut her hair the same way. So we reached out to my mother and I said, you know, what? Did they just teach every mother in America to just drop this bowl on your daughter's head and cut around it? Moms and dads yeah. did what they need to do they, to get yes. us through. Yes. Uh, but I want to talk about this little girl. Uh, <laughs> and I think this is the uh, album cover for your next album. <laughs> so, uh, I really do. so did, did you... Harp. Yeah. Did, I mean, I, I know that the music was always a part of you and you are yeah. classically trained, uh, but did you grow up in a household of music? Yes. Absolutely. Uh, I, my grandmother was a wonderful pianist and I have her 1926 Steinway in my living room. This is not my living room. Uh, and it's my most treasured possession. Uh, her sister was an opera singer, a mezzo-soprano. And I think you've seen me sing the song Yiddish Nightingale. Oh, and I always God, talk yes. about, I always talk about uh, my grandmother's sister, Hadassah, Aunt Dessa. So that's on, on that end of the family tree, there were musicians. On the other end of the family tree was my father, who could, really could not keep a tune, but absolutely adored what I now know to be the Great American Songbook. He gave me the Great American Songbook. And it started with him singing to me, all of Al Jolson, he just adored Al Jolson. So in my new cabaret show, the first song is April Showers. The first yeah. anecdote okay. is about Jolson and is about my father. So I, it was coming from both ends. And my, my mother managed to round out um, my understanding of opera and, and, and musical comedy. And every, every birthday was a Broadway show, which 
for me was just heaven. I lived on Long Island and we all went in and saw a Broadway show every year. It was like, and there was music playing in my house all the time. Do you recall the first cabaret show that you ever saw? Oh, how interesting. I'll tell you, I, I remember being in the room. I can't tell you much more than that. When I was slightly younger than the girl in that picture, we went to Florida and Judy Garland was playing at the hotel. And I remember being in the room. I remember that it was a tiered room and I remember it had an electricity in the room and a tension in the room. I don't remember her, I can't hear her voice, but I remember being in that room. And so that kind of thing that a great singer can create, the sense of anticipation and the sense of connection and sparks and electricity, uh, I remember that. Um, my father, when I was a teenager, worked at um, uh, Madison Square Garden, and I got to see Sinatra at Madison Square Garden. Wow. And that's not a nightclub, but I have to tell you, they were screaming all the bodies of Bobby Soxers were, you know, of a certain age at that point. And he told them to be quiet. He invited all everyone in Madison Square Garden to sit next to him on a bar stool while he told us a story. And then he sang Angel Eyes. And I, to this day, I can remember what he did in that room. And I saw Streisand at uh, Madison Square Garden also. And that was not, it, I mean, it was thrilling and she sounded thrilling, but that intimacy that he did between himself, the respect he had for the music and how he communicated to that audience. I will never, ever forget that. And so. We had tickets to see Frank Sinatra and Shirley MacLaine at Radio City Music Hall. And I was so thrilled and so excited. Um, and the morning of the concert, I'm listening to WNEW 1130 AM radio, if you remember. Yep. I'm listening and they announced that he has pneumonia. And that the show was being postponed. He never performed again. Oh. And I never got the chance to see him live. But I he I've heard stories that even at the end of his life, uh, we know this, uh, the legendary stories of Mabel Mercer, right. where her, she basically did not have the ability to sing a song the way that she did in her early career. But she could sit on a chair. Yeah, and Parlando and speak. I'll tell you who I saw do that. And that was Peggy Lee. Um, mm -hmm. I saw her at the ballroom and she, this was towards the end of her life. She came out, sat in a director's chair and as she made her way, like holding onto the piano and everything to get there, um, she sat down and started to sing, I won't, I, I won't dance. Don't ask me. And <laughs> I still remember so vividly that moment because she just took the audience by surprise, because she could barely make her way to the chair. I mean, it looked like. And then she sat down, and it was just amazing. And there are certain entertainers. Uh, I prefer entertainers rather than performers uh, for the greats that I love. And I put you in that category, Celia. Thank I you. truly do. Thank you. Uh, but in those, I know that you early on 
knew that you had this gift and that you wanted to pursue a career, but you also said early on that you knew that that was not the lifestyle for you. I, I, it turned out I was not built for being a starving artist. And I got a national commercial. And I remember walking out at like midnight. We had been shooting all day. And I went, oh, my God, tomorrow I have to start all over again and look for another job. And, and if I get a job that takes me out of town, if I get a show and it's a tour, what am I going to do with my apartment? And I thought, this is... This is Fakata. Was me. it like a light bulb that went off at that moment? No, you- I I could I, I so wanted to do this that I never actually said that I quit. What I said was I need to take a break for a year. And so that's I ne- I never did anything other than that. Um and so that's why I and and then I it just kept going and going and going and I and I started going up the corporate ladder, but I I could never tell myself that I had quit. And I always, you know, when I would have a disappointment at, at on the corporate side, I would go, that's nothing. That didn't break my heart. The perf- being a performer, not performing, that broke my heart. Um, Did you think of yourself as quitting or taking a break? I told myself I was taking a break and I never went further than that in my head. So now fast forward to about 10 years ago and I walk through the door of cabaret, which was the only door, honestly, that was open to me. But then I got up one morning and I said, I wonder what happened to my equity card and my SAG card. I wonder if I like gave them back. I knew I wasn't paying, but I didn't know if I quit the union. What did I do? So I called both of, I called SAG and I called equity and they said, no, you suspended them and you can have them back, but it'll cost you a lot of money. And I said, how much money? And they said something like, well, you'll have to pay like a $75 return fee and then the next dues. And I got my SAG card back and that was fine. And I went to equity and I paid paid it, walked into equity. I used to be in equity all the time. I used to go to all those auditions and everything. Uh I walked out with my card. There was a bench outside of equity. I sat down and I cried like a baby to have it back. And I went, all right, this is a clue about something. You wanted this back. What are you going to do with it? What you've got in your hand, metaphorically. So I was shocked. I just well, said that. You know, I, I mean, I've lived here in Rockland County for mm. now 33 years almost. And I know that if I had stayed in Manhattan, um, because I was that kid at the time that yeah. used to get up and go to the cattle calls and sign Yes, up. at six o'clock in the morning, you had to sign it up. Oh my God. And, you know, bleary eyed and drinking uh, bad coffee from the coffee shop on the corner. Chuck full of nuts was on the corner. Uh, that's how. <laughs> back it was and you know and it was just such a you know it was a different world but when I moved out here and then the world of cabaret started happening for me and I started getting booked around the country it was a whole different world for me and I have never stopped paying my equity dues my new bill just arrived two days ago yeah I just got mine yeah yes and the thing is that they always arrive on time uh but I, I've never stopped paying the dues, but when I um, when I send that money in, I feel like I'm a part of this community. I'm a part of this world, and uh, for my dollar twenty five in pension that I probably have earned. Uh, but it's yeah, you know, and and now I 
I'm writing a new show, which I'm debuting in Washington in March. I am starting to think about getting back on the boards again. And there's a lot that scares me uh, because I'm older. And uh, But COVID stopped everything for me. And, I, and that's why I do what I do now, uh, because I stopped being on stage. And I desperately miss it. I went to see a show a, a couple of weeks ago, and Beth Fowler... Mm-hmm. Uh, said that she couldn't stop watching me in the audience because my face was let up. And But I love entertainers. I love being in the audience and watching someone create that magic on stage. And it's not jealousy. I mean, I have this desire to be up there with them, but I absolutely get this thrill from being in the audience uh, and being in the audience with fellow artists. And you know what that is, and that is truly what the world of cabaret has become. But as you are starting to get those urges to come back, how did you make that initial change? Uh, well, you mentioned Sarah Rice, uh, and we shared the same voice teacher, and I had that voice teacher for 20 something years and at periodically she would say are you ever going to do anything with with this and I said no and she would go okay and she'd wait five years and she'd ask again um but one day I had said to her I think I want to do something with this and she went oh thank god she really was holding on uh and um I Uh, did some work with Alex Ryback and we Mm -hmm. went into a studio and made a demo, uh, which is great because I would never have had the courage to stand in front of anybody and sing. And so I walked out with a demo uh, and I took it back to my voice teacher and we were listening to it. And the next uh, student to arrive was Sarah Rice. And she said, oh, you need to sing with us. I have this group that sings upstate once a month and there are just enough people in the audience to get your adrenaline going. You need to come. Uh, And so I said, okay. And that's how I started performing again was doing that one, uh, one or two songs once a month. Uh, Plus having this. How long did you do that before you got the uh, courage uh, to uh, step on a cabaret stage the first time I saw you was at the iguana right and that's it there's a direct line to that because uh one of the other singers in the group was a wonderful person named Rich Flanders Mm -hmm. and he said to me would you like to sing a duet and he handed me a song and I said okay uh and then I took him with me to Alex he knew Alex uh and I'm pretty sure he knew Alex at that point and uh we started working up a show. Uh, I would never, ever have had the courage to do something on my own at at that point. And Alex took us to the Iguana where you and Dana were doing an open mic. And I will always say um, that um, that was my first experience getting up and I thought I was going to die in New York. And and you said to me afterwards, you are always welcome here. Come back anytime. And I've never forgotten that, that the first person who I encountered was so, was so welcoming to me. And that's really what the cabaret world has been, is this welcoming door that was ajar if I wanted to go through it. You and Rich, I mean, your voices blended so yeah. together. And yeah. uh, I, I mean, and I remember I, I went out to, I, 
don't remember. It was a church, I think. Uh, yeah, in, they were both churches. They uh, were in New Jersey. and then Blooming Grove. Both Blooming Grove. Grove. That's yeah. yeah. And uh, but uh, your voices blended so well together, and you worked together for quite some time. When yeah, we you... ended up. That was my show at Don't Tell Mama. You know, everybody who starts in cabaret in New York starts goes to Don't, to Don't Tell Mama. Mama. Um, so that was with Rich. And we went into the studio and we recorded three songs. Then we went back in and did a single. So I, if it wasn't for Rich and if it wasn't for Sarah, I, I, I'd still be hiding under my desk, I think. But I, I mean, how did the audience begin to grow for you? Uh, and uh, that this was... Uh, had Facebook even come along at that point? I don't Facebook recall. was along, um, and and I use it very carefully. So I I know it can be very dangerous. I know I know social media can be very unhealthy. Uh, I know it makes pe some people very unhappy because they don't understand that everybody is choosing to present a curated view of themselves. You know, it's not what their life is really like. But for me, it was an opportunity to. Um, introduce myself and stay connected to various people. And the and when I did my first album, I went and I hired someone to do publicity with me. Deliberately, it was somebody younger uh, who taught me the ropes of social media because that's where it's going. And so you, you, you can't fight it. Um, so, well, and, and it's only now that I've started posting about the music on LinkedIn. It took me years to connect the corporate and the music together. I, that was like the last step that I just wasn't ready to do. Well, you beat me to my next question. <laughs> I mean, you have this incredible background uh, in the corporate world. Uh, when did you begin to merge the two in terms of promoting yourself? And as I said earlier, uh, you seem to have a very strong sense of your brand, what you bring to the table, and it's worked for you very successfully. Uh, the quote that I pulled here, uh, and I'm going to put it up here, and uh, one of the best singers I've heard in a long time, and he's right, Rex Reed. Uh, you don't get better than that, folks, because he is tough. Uh, when did the When did you feel the shift in your career that people were starting to pay attention to you? It, you know, I started doing the cabaret and the recording thing and it went whoosh. And I went, Oh my God, I, if that had happened 30 years ago, I don't, I don't know whether I would have had that corporate career because nothing was working, but I was holding it back. I, I know I was very ambivalent about the whole thing. Um, and this time I just tried to keep an open mind and keep going. Uh, and as I said, when you surround yourself with people who really understand that world and are generous about helping you decode it, and you mentioned KT as well, KT Sullivan, then you suddenly have a platform to try to build something. But it, it gets harder. It doesn't get easier. Well, the New York City cabaret world uh, is a very strange world to be a part of, let's face it. Uh, and you have had these opportunities with Sarah and uh, with Rick Landers. And, uh, but have you moved beyond the New York City cabaret scene? Have you started booking yourself out in other 
uh, major cities? You know, uh, I ha I haven't. I was just beginning to potentially do that. I had just been asked to do something in Florida, and everything shut down. Um, so I really turned back to the recording again because it was something that was reasonably within my control during COVID. Uh, but it's it's on the table. I mean, that's a missing piece for me is that I don't take these things out of town and I, and I can, uh, but it's an enormous amount of work. As you know, you're, oh. you're everything. You're the producer and you're not the director, but you are the producer and you're organizing the musicians and negotiating with the musicians and dealing with the room and then being responsible for filling the room. And then everything, everything. You're the bank. Um, so um, I've, I've just been very careful about what, what I bite off, but I, I'm, ver I'm very aware that that's a, a missing piece for me. How much, I, I, I know that you are still doing, the, uh, you know, your uh, vocal lessons. Uh, you're diligent about that. Uh, but when you're not doing a show, and of course, COVID notwithstanding or withstanding, whatever, uh, do you, were you going still to open mics and getting the opportunity to try out new material in front of an audience? I had pretty much stopped doing open mics. Uh, they're brutal. They are really brutal, but they were great. So the the opportunity to do what Sarah was doing and then doing the open mics. And I, I'm sure you remember there was an open mic at the Metropolitan Room on Sunday yes. mornings. And I would go every Sunday morning. It was like going to the guillotine. I was so scared. but And that meant that I had to work with lots of different uh, music directors because there was a different music director every week and uh, Alex was going to be on the road. He wasn't going to be around on a Sunday morning. He had just done a gig somewhere in some other location on a Saturday night. Um, so that taught me a lot and having to get up and do that um, definitely built some muscles for me. But And, and Salon has been wonderful and um, Mark and, and Mark Janice and Tanya Moberly, that's another place where you could go and try things out. So sometimes when I'm in the early stages of something, um, I'll throw myself back into an open mic because you have got to find out from an audience whether what you think is working is making any sense. And you know, an audience tells you a lot even if they think they're just sitting there like that, you can see when they zone out. You can see when you've really got them. Um, you can see if they wince. Um, but all of that got taken away. Um, so the show that I'm doing now, the we just did one friends and family, and then I was up on the stage in the beachman, and I like everybody come back because. I feel like after uh, by the fifth performance, it definitely is different than the first performance. There's no place to get things up to try them. Well, this may seem like a silly, simple question that I'm going to ask you. Uh, and but uh, think about it. What was the scariest part about going into this Sunday morning open mic and getting up? in front of an audience. I mean, already you were loved in the cabaret community. People but knew- But this was, this was before I hadn't done my show oh, yet. I was okay. doing this to get ready to do my show. And because my first show was gonna be at the Metropolitan Room, I really wanted to, I wanted feel to feel that stage. that stage. Yeah. Um, uh, I just, 
it was just in such an enormous leap, just mm-hmm. an absolutely enormous leap. And Alex had said something to me. He was right, but it scared the crap out of me. He said, well, you know, you're older and you read older. So when you get up on a stage, an audience is going to expect you to have as much performing experience as you do life experience. So they're not going to give you a pass like they would a kid. And that's all, that was it. I was from that point on, I was gone, but he was right. Um, so what a great like, thing for him to say to you though. Yeah, no, right. it was. no, he was absolutely, absolutely right. It was like, Nope, they're not going to give me a pass. Um, so how am I going to do this? And so I just had to work through the fear in various ways. How do you find your audience now outside the cabaret world? Um, That's partly why I've broken down the boundaries between the social media that's more entertainment focused and the things like LinkedIn. Um, I'm just much more open about it. And when we think of promotion for things, we don't just think about the obvious kinds of stories and where those stories could run. Um, to help people. You're trying to help people find you. Um, And it's not so easy. It really, really isn't easy. There's a lot of noise in the system and not a lot of support from any of the rooms, not because they're doing something wrong. It's just that that everybody only has so much bandwidth. You all have to do your own thing. You have to take care of yourself. Yes, I have a theory about that, however. Uh, I would much rather see 15 quality acts book, booked in any club than to see 150 acts that are struggling for an audience. Hmm. And but great, great performers will occasionally struggle yes. for an audience. Yes, I know. Um, I know. It's, it's happened to everybody. And I've been in some rooms of great performers where it's sparse. It, it, there are just nights that are like a perfect storm of everything um, everything is wrong. And you mentioned Melissa Errico, not only the one where she got rained out, she wrote this gorgeous story for the New York Times, very honest about what the whole thing is like, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And she talked about being somewhere in the Midwest with Ted uh, and discovering they had a really small audience because across the street was another theater with a big name. And in a small town, They'd all gone there. And she talked about the fact that she didn't want to go out and do it and that Ted made her do it and that it was the best thing she ever did because she owed it to the people who'd chosen to come and see her that night. But I gave her such props for telling that story. I mean, it was, it, 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 if you haven't seen that article, no, in it's the an New amazing Times, article. I know which one you're oh, looking at. Oh, my God. And, well, uh, Julie Wilson, I mean, she would go on and she, with her, career behind her she said there were some nights where they, she would be lucky if there were four people in the audience right and uh and that was in the days when they did late shows so as we wind down today i've got some random questions for you okay and these are just for the fun of it just to get a, a sense of you and the first three questions are uh truly random questions i haven't even looked at them yet and the first one is what's the best thing about the opposite gender <laughs> the best thing about the opposite gender yeah they're the opposite gender they're they're, the opposite gender they're the opposite (laughs) that they're different i love the answer (laughs) what a crazy question to pop up um so this is a statement and i'd like you to repeat the statement after i say it and then elaborate on it okay and the statement is i own my truth and speak it freely 
own my truth and speak it freely. And I try not to hurt anybody in the process. Wonderful. That's great. Well, you certainly own your truth on stage. So, and so that fear that you went through. Well, it's never going to go away. It's just kind of (laughs) managed now. Yeah. So I pulled this card. It's called Look at the Bridge. You can see this. And it says, if you're too shy to maintain eye contact, now that we're talking about this, look at the bridge of a person's nose. Uh, The other person can't tell the difference and you feel less uncomfortable. With the work that you do in the world of cabaret, um, what are those moments like when you're negotiating? Uh, for you. Uh, I mean, obviously, you've got this incredible corporate background, uh, and I'm sure that you bring some of that to the table. But I'm talking about in terms of putting your team together, choosing your material, asserting yourself and living your truth, so to speak. Right. So what what's the question? So the question is, um, your negotiating skills in oh. terms of dealing with other people to assert your truth in this business. I, I, I mean, I'm negotiating with people all the time. Uh, I'm trying to understand because there isn't a rule book for, for mm-hmm. this, this whole world. Uh, I try to understand what people do, whether it's fair, what it feels like on the other side, uh, whether we're making an investment in each other in some way. Uh, and that works both ways. And if I get stuck, I really do try to sit on the other side of the table mentally and go, why are, why are we all tangled here? Um, what, did, what did I do badly that I can do better uh, and, and own it? But sometimes it's just not, it, it, not going to work for whatever reason. But I, just, I try to be fair. I want everybody to feel that they're being treated with respect. That's wonderful. Um, what do you think is the clearest definition of for you of what success means in this business? What success you uh, you mean in cabaret or in uh, music? When it comes to your music, cabaret, yeah, any yeah. of the uh, topics that we've discussed this evening. Your Thank career, you. your uh, what success means to you? That that I am doing it on my own terms, that I'm proud of it, that it's not the same thing over and over again, that I'm constantly challenging myself. So I, I, it's okay if something doesn't go right, right away, or Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm always sure it can be done better. uh, But that I'm always trying to do it better. Um, And that the people that I respect, respect what I do. And nothing gives me more pleasure than when somebody tells me that they listened to something and it brought evoked something in them, that they got something from it, uh, whether it was a memory or they connected to it or it just gave them pleasure. Um, that I just think that's thrilling. That's wonderful. Uh, what is the biggest uh, injustice that you feel that you have endured in your career or have you? And if so, without giving away any names or anything, I'm asking this question for a specific reason. And what got you through it? 
I don't think I've encountered injustice. I've encountered frustration, but I think it's the same frustration that everybody has. I just, the cabaret world is just, it's hard. It's hard mm -hmm. work. But that's the trade-off of it also being the open door that welcomes everybody. I mean, I don't think you can have one without the other. Um, Great. So, um, yeah. What is the best, do you believe in manifestation? And if so, do you feel that you are manifesting the career that you have envisioned? You know, I, I never did. And when I work with Rich Flanders, he would say things and I'd go, what? And he'd say, I'm just putting it out there in the universe. And then I would see that when he put stuff out in the universe, he made it happen. So I said, you know what? I'm going to try that. So I, I like throw things out to see what will happen, like because First and foremost, I, I really consider myself an actor who sings, not a singer who acts, because that's my background. Mm -hmm. And to me, every song is a one-act play. So I just started putting out there, I would like to do some acting. And damned, if I didn't get two things, two opportunities this year, and I thought, oh, my God, rich, Rich's thing really works. I just put it out there. <laughs> Thank you, Rich Flanders. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, so I'm going to have to think about what I want to put out there next. My God. Well, I love that. Are you a minimalist or a collector? Uh, I'm a collector. Behind that door is so much junk. It's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> um, what turned out to be the most useful course that has helped you in your current career? Most useful course? Probably finance for non-financial managers. <laughs> <laughs> I Because I, re I remember early on when I was talking to Alex and to to um, to Jeff and I, I went, now you, now you didn't understand that the economics of this aren't, aren't working, right? You do understand all the money's going out from the performer and only so much money is coming back. And I swear it's because I took that uh, that seminar, I think it was the University of Michigan for a week and finally cracked the code on understanding finance. And I went, okay, I understand the model now. <laughs> now, this is an interesting, bizarre question I'm going to ask you. I'm warning you. Uh, what true crime have you ever been most tempted to commit? Oh, murder. I mean, I think we've all <laughs> wanted to murder somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say who. Um, <laughs> excuse me, now I'm going to get caught up. Uh, what boundaries do you create around the people in your career? Um, I, I, I think there are different tiers of relationships. And I think that there are people who you have working relationships with. And I think there are working relationships that are also very important to you personally. Mm -hmm. And so you have to differentiate between those uh, and you have to protect them in different ways because of the kinds of relationships that they are. Wow. Great answer. Uh, when you were a child, do you, did you fit the mold of a perfect child? It depends on who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> I will go back and look at this gorgeous picture. I think this is a, I think this is a perfect child. I don't think I was a perfect child, but um, I, I wasn't an, I don't think I was a nightmare. <laughs> wow. And this is going to be my last question. Uh, and remember, if you put in hashtag drive, 
uh, you will have a chance to win Celia Burke's CD, which is phenomenal. Uh, I mean, you, one of my favorite songs is on the CD, and that's Love uh, from Ziegfeld Follies. I love that song. I love what Lena Horne did with it. I love what Judy Garland did with it. But Julia, you made it your own. Oh, so, thank you. Thank you. Thank uh, you. What is the most surprising action that you feel that you've ever taken in your career beyond anything that we've discussed this evening? Oh, I think just going back to it after 30 years, I'm I'm still shocked. Uh, and I'm still shocked by um, the reception that I got. A every time I get a, a positive review, I'm still shocked when this new show, which by the way, comes back on October 23rd to the Lori Beachman at 4 p.m. But when we opened in February, uh, all they told me was that I had made my minimum. And when I came out, uh, it was wall-to-wall -wall people who I so admire. And they had all come out. I think everybody said, we got to go see a show. We can't take it anymore. We're so tired of being locked up. But I, for every step I took, I, I saw somebody else who I had no idea they were going to be there and that they all came that first night. Um, I will I will never forget that. I still replay, I replay yeah. that in my mind's eye. I will be forever shocked by that. Well, congratulations, and we're going to do this giveaway. I thank you all for being here tonight. I love you, and I <laughs> thank this, you. This is. I hope you've had as much fun as I've had tonight. I, I did. I love it's it. never. Look oh, Marianne! Marianne uh, Lapento. I don't know if she has the CD or not. I don't Marianne, know. She'll tell me. She knows how to get to me. Yes. If me, you yeah. already have the CD, please uh, take it and give it to someone else. Will Nanziata right. is here. Uh, and Will Nunziata is going to be here on the show on the 25th, I think it is. Now, he uh, has and, an interesting career that's going oh my in all God. kinds of and interesting directions, including directing now. So Marianne yeah. says she doesn't have it, so she's going to Excellent. All so, right, Marianne, okay, we'll talk. You don't have it. So I'm going to say my final uh, comments for tonight. Then I'm going to turn it over to you and give you the final word. Uh, anything you want to say about anything that we talked about tonight that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message that you want to leave everyone with uh, tonight. Um, I want to thank you all for being here. Um, I, like I said, and this is not just lip service, I have been a fan of Celia. Uh, Celia's is the first time I saw her on stage, and that has never dissipated. This CD is incredible. I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. What I'd like you all to do, if you are able to do this, is to order two copies of this CD. And all of the information, by the way, is going to be on my YouTube channel. Uh, all the links, how to get in touch with Celia uh, on her various social media platforms, everything's right there. So if you're able to do it, order two copies of the CD. Keep one for yourself and send one to the first name that pops up on your friends list tonight. And let them know about this show. Let them know about the work that Celia is doing. And her next upcoming show, which is going to be at the Laurie Beachman on the 23rd. Sunday, October 23rd. At Sunday, October 23rd. So uh, if you're able to be in New York and see her, go and see the show. Drive. I mean, here, I mean, she exemplifies it to me uh, in terms of her dedication to her craft her audiences, which are very important in this business, it's not just about getting up on stage. 
and just singing songs. There's so much that goes into it. And I love the fact that she respects her audiences and they respect her in return. Um, again, uh, if you enjoyed tonight's show, and I hope you did, please leave a comment on YouTube after tonight's show. Let us know what you think of the show. Tell your friends about the show. Um, advertising is great, but word of mouth is even better. So please go out and talk about the show. Uh, leave a comment on your favorite social media platform and tag both of us. And that will let other people know about the show as well. Um, I always, you know, uh, and I would like everyone to reach out with a phone call tonight to the first person that pops up on your friends list. Uh, not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, but a phone call. Celia, I want you to do the same thing. Go to your friends list and the first name that you see reach out with a phone call and let that person know what they mean to you. Yesterday, uh, Angela Lansbury passed away, but I think about what an amazing career. And I was having a conversation with someone yesterday and I said, how wonderful that we had her in our lifetime because there'll be babies that will be born today and beyond who didn't have her in their lifetime. And Lo and behold, I'm watching uh, Stephanie Rule on uh, MSNBC last night, and she said the same exact thing. I couldn't believe it. I, it was like the synchronicity of that. So how lucky are we that all of us are in this moment right now? So spread that love around. Uh, as I say, you know, reach out to that first person. Uh, my dear friend Sean Moniker says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. And I always say, if you're going to go out in a boat, make sure you bring a skipper along. Yeah. So Celia, I'm going to leave the screen. You got the final word. And again, thank you for all that you do. I Thank you. Thank you for so all much. that you do. Uh, I, 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 I would just say, I hope that everybody enjoys the album. Uh, on my website, CeliaBurke.com, uh, there's a whole section called Recordings. And in each section, there are credits. Uh, this album has liner notes by Will Friedwald, which was a great honor. And the album is uh, done in the style of the Nat King Cole trio. And Will wrote the definitive book about Nat King Cole uh, and their song notes. Um, I also hope that if you haven't come to see the show. Uh, it was directed by Mark Nadler, which you can imagine was a, an incredible experience. Uh, and it's me, just me and Ted Firth on the stage. And it would be a pleasure to have anybody come who hasn't uh, come before. And a big shout out to the Mabel Mercer Foundation for the home that they've given me. And I will be part of the cabaret convention at Jazz at Lincoln Center, which is back full bore uh, the very last uh, week of the month, and I'm on Katie Sullivan's final evening, which is the 28th. So Cabaret is back, and thank God for that. Thank you so much, and thank you to Richard.